Amen. If you have your Bibles with you today, would you take them out and turn to the book of Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. For those who might have wandered in late, I'm sure by now you've noticed that the bulletin does not have Colossians chapter 1 printed on it. There was a, a small administrative mix-up. But the sermon text, I promise, is from Colossians 1, verses 9 through 14. There are some pew Bibles available if you don't have one. Uh, otherwise, Colossians 1. The sermon today is going to be from verses 9 through 14. This is actually not a, a prayer, strictly speaking. What we've looked at so far in this series on the prayers of the saints have been prayers that are recorded for us in the Bible, Old Testament and New, prayed by saints way back when, who were praying to the Lord in all different sorts of ways. This is a little different only in as much as it's a report of what Paul prays for this church in Colossae. It's not technically the prayer itself, but it's a report of how he prays for them, the sorts of things that are on his mind. And so it gives us a window into the heart of Paul, and it's so insightful to know, to, to see Paul at prayer for one of his churches. Not only that we might learn how to model him in our prayers, but to know that, that these are things that he would be praying for us were he here or, or we there. He would be praying for us these things and to give our hearts towards them. So what I want to do is to begin reading at verse 3. Verses 3 through 8 is a thanksgiving, how Paul is thanking the Lord for the church. And then starting in verse 9, he reports the things he's praying for the church. That's our text, but I want us to hear the whole passage so I'm going to start in Colossians 1, verse 3. And let me ask, if you're able, would you join me today in standing for the reading of God's word? Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance, and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray one more time and commit our, our time of teaching to the Lord. Father, this is your holy word, inspired, inerrant, given to us to make us wise wise unto salvation, wise unto living a life of, of discipleship and faithfully following our Savior Jesus Christ. And so, 
We pray, Father, will your spirit be our guide and teacher today? May he take the words that you have written and press them on our hearts, that we might see our Savior, Jesus Christ, high and lifted up and be drawn again to him. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, perhaps you've had the experience of, of walking into a room and someone is there, someone in your family, a friend is there, and they're talking on the phone, and you get to hear one side of the conversation. And through that one side of the conversation, you're doing your best to, to put some of the pieces together and to figure out who it is they're talking to, what exactly they're, they're working on on that conversation, but you can only hear what they say. You don't hear what the other person is saying. When we read the book of Colossians, it's a little bit like that because we know, based on what Paul writes, that there were some false teachers who had come into the church at Colossae and were teaching heresy to the people. Paul is writing this letter in part to straighten them out, and part of what he prays for them is based on the fact of what he knows. But we don't know the other side of the conversation. We don't know exactly what those false teachers were teaching or the troubles that they were introducing into the church. All we know is from what Paul writes about it, the corrections he gives to them, the way he prays for them. And that's what we have. He's telling them how he's praying for them. And this is specifically for them in light of what they are hearing. One of the things that, that we know, or one of the best guesses that we can make of these false teachers that had come into the church, they were teaching some form of Jesus plus something else equals a even deeper spiritual experience. We don't know exactly what it was that they were adding, but, but they were teaching that what they had heard, what these Christians had heard from Epaphras, right? he's the faithful minister mentioned in verse 7. He's the one most likely who had planted the church, who had laid the foundation and preached the gospel to them, such that he was sharing the gospel. People were coming to Christ and this church was gathered. And now these false teachers came and they said, all these things about Christ that you have heard from Epaphras, the gospel, what a good start you've made. Now, in order to have a true spiritual experience, to have true knowledge and real spiritual power, you need to add something else onto that. You need to have more knowledge. You need to go deeper into spiritual knowledge to become the real spiritual elite, to have a full spiritual experience and real spiritual power. You need to add something to what you have already learned. Which is why Paul is saying over and over that what they have learned is enough. He is telling them that in Christ they have everything that is necessary to have all spiritual wisdom and, and understanding, to know the will of God for them, to walk a life that is worthy of the Lord, and to experience the spiritual power that he talks about in verse 11 being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. He says in order to do that you have everything you need in Christ. There's no need to add on more experiences. In some ways, we see this still today. It's not always as explicit as people saying that, that Jesus is only a good start, now you need to add on. Sometimes it is. But we still hear from other teachers who would tell us that, that the true spiritual experience lies in something beyond the gospel. That, that they do not teach you simply Christ, but, but some other spiritual experience that is necessary. Or perhaps we see this teaching most often in, in simply in the way we live. 
do we not all know the frustration that is ours sometimes when we, we feel like we're just not growing enough? That we don't have the peace of Christ the way we ought to have it. We don't ha- see in the joy in our hearts that we feel like should be there. And so what do we do? Well, don't we so often go from, from one thing to the next and, and the latest new book that comes out, we, we're devouring one after the other, trying to find something to fill our souls. Or we go to the latest hip pastor podcast and devour one after the other. We're trying to find something else instead of recognizing that what we have in Christ is enough. We don't need to go beyond the gospel. We don't need to go to other things. We simply need to go deeper into the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to realize that in him we have everything that is necessary. What Paul is praying for the church here, on the one hand, it, it's, it's divine, it's supernatural, because it does come literally from the, the Spirit, and so it's divine, but on the other hand, it's, it's actually pretty ordinary. It's pretty ordinary. He prays for them three things, that they will be filled with spiritual obedience, spiritual wisdom, and spiritual power. And in each one of those, the spiritual is with a capital S because it refers to the fact that it comes through the Holy Spirit himself. Obedience, wisdom, and power, not necessarily in that order. I want to start with uh, obedience, which in the text is actually the middle thing that he prays about. What he does, in verse 9, he prays that they'll be filled with the knowledge of the will of God, That's spirit, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's the first thing, but I want to start with verse 10 where he prays that they will be able to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. It's what I call spiritual obedience. And this is the one big question of this text for each one of us. I believe this is the one thing that that Paul prays for his churches more than anything else, is that they will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. They will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And I believe that this is, for us today, the one big question that each of us should take away from this text, that each of us should learn to ask of our lives, am I walking in a way that is pleasing to the Lord? Am I walking in a way that is worthy of Him? In every area of life, this needs to become the grid that we learn to look at our lives through. This learn needs to be the lens. I know that for all of us, life is so busy and full and complicated, and there's so many things going on. It's often a, a challenge just to juggle the things already on our schedules, and yet what this text tells us here is, is to center us, to bring us back to what truly matters, and to say, is your life, the way you're living, worthy of the Lord? Is it pleasing to God? That, this one question is so simple and yet so easily missed. Am I living my life in a way that is pleasing to the Lord? That's Paul's prayer for his church. And in so many of his letters, that is the center of peace of his prayer for them. I am certain that Paul knew about all sorts of needs in this congregation. I'm certain he knew of all ser- sorts of needs diseases, sicknesses, job problems, job opportunities being missed, all sorts of difficulties. This was a a small congregation that was surrounded by, by trials, by difficulties, and yet 
even as he tells them in this letter the sorts of things that he's praying for, I'm sure he's praying for all of those things, but that's not what he takes time to record. What he takes time to record as their pastor praying for them is that they will walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. Just like the prayer that we saw at the beginning of Philippians, uh, chapter 1, verse 9, where he says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge, with all discernment, that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. His prayer for his people is that they will learn what it is to walk a life of faithful discipleship, pleasing to the Lord. In 1 Timothy, when he's exhorting Timothy to pray, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, he tells him that he should be praying for all people, with supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings being made for all people. Why this is what he should pray, in order that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, for this is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Timothy, what do you pray for your churches? He's, he's the young pastor. Paul's his mentor. Timothy, how do you pray? Pray that they will lead godly, dignified lives that are pleasing, good in the sight of God, our Savior. As I read this and thought about this week, I was, I was convicted that my prayer life doesn't model Paul's in this area as much as it should. Although it is good, and we are told and commanded to pray for all sorts of things, to bring all of our cares and to cast them on him because he cares for us. Nothing is too small to be brought to the Lord in prayer. And yet, as we look at Paul, there are certain things that stand out. And praying that they will learn what it is to live a godly life stands out above all else. It says, walking in a manner that's worthy of the Lord. Now, we need to be clear on that, that he does not mean in any way that we are to walk in a way that makes us worthy to receive his grace. We cannot do that. That is impossible to walk in such a way that God would look at us and see us as being worthy. Rather, what he's saying is that we are to live in a way that worthily expresses the grace that we've already received. To express the grace that is ours. After all, he, he's quite clear that he's praying for those who who are believers who have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Because of that, because they've been transferred, because he is praying for people and saying, once upon a time you lived in that domain of darkness. And you lived as people who were citizens of the domain of darkness. You fully partook in their ways. You walked as they walked, but you don't live there anymore. He says, now you are those who have been transferred out of that domain. You are transferred into now the kingdom of the Son of God, where he reigns, and and that makes all the difference in the way now that they learn how to live a life that is worthy of the Lord. Because, you see, how you live depends on where you live. How you live depends on where you live. If you live in the domain of darkness, you will live as someone, as a citizen of that domain. It will influence your values, your priorities, your loves, the things that you cherish. But if you live in the kingdom of God, you, you recognize that you live under the reign of a different king. You live now among a people who have a different set of values, a different set, a different, uh, 
determination of what's important in the world. We have different goals. We live differently. Just to give a very simple example of the way that this works. If, if you live in America, most of you do, you live as an American, and we know what that means. If, if, when you live here, you have a certain sense that Americans are people who value freedom, individuality, personal determination. Uh, we value fireworks on the 4th of July. We value apple pie. There are certain things that are just common to what it is to be an American, and, and, and we celebrate those, and we value those. We're taught to pursue the American dream, to live life to the fullest. But if you were to, to move to a, a very different culture, to a foreign country, you would recognize as part of your adjustment that, that the things that are valued here in the States are not valued the same way in foreign countries because they are taught in their culture to value different things, to live for different goals, that the, the great purpose of a of successful life is, is perhaps something different than it is here. And, and it's so simple, but we recognize that it's the same way when you live in the kingdom of God. That our determination of what it means to live a successful life, of what values and priorities we should be pursuing, of what our goals in life ought to be, the way we treat other people, all those are determined by where we live. And so he is praying for them that they will live this way, and the only reason that it is possible for them to live this way is because of what God has done for them in taking them out of the domain of darkness. If they still lived there, they would live as its citizens, but he says, God has transferred you out of that. He has rescued you, he has redeemed you from it, and he has now enrolled you as citizens in the kingdom of his beloved son. And life is different there. Goals are different there. Values are different there. People are treated differently there. That is the goal. And what he says, here, here's his other description of it, not only in verse 9, or excuse me, verse 10, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, but listen to this next description. Fully pleasing to him. Fully pleasing to him. One of the most important ways to describe a life of godliness is that it's a life that is pleasing to the Lord. This is one of, another one of Paul's favorite exhortations. He does it throughout his letters to exhort his people to learn what is pleasing to God. 1 Thessalonians 4.1, Ephesians 5.10, 2 Corinthians 5.9 are all exhortations to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. You hear how this changes his exhortation to obedience. To say that learning to live a faithful Christian life is not a matter of having a, a checklist of things to do and what we need to do is just check off all the appropriate boxes to be sure that we have lived the appropriate lifestyle to a Christian. Rather, what he says is that obedience is actually a, a very personal matter. It's personal to God. That the way that you walk, that is the way that you live, the way that you talk, the way that you treat others will either be pleasing to the Lord or it will be displeasing to the Lord. This is the great motivation for, for believers in Christ to live the way that they ought to live is not some external pressure or checklist, but the motivation comes from a, a heartfelt desire to live a way that is pleasing to God, to know what the Lord has done for us and who he is to us and to say it will be our heart's desire now to please him, to do what is right in his eyes. I mean, it's an amazing thought, isn't it, to think that, that my life, 
small though it is and, and insignificant in the grand scheme of things, nevertheless can be pleasing to God, the sovereign Lord of the universe, or it can be displeasing to him. Based on how I treat others, how I spend my time, how I budget my finances, we are called to live a life that is pleasing to God. I think this is one way where the cultural conceptions of Christianity just have no clue about what the heart of living as a Christian is all about. Our culture would look at Christians and say they're, they're just a bunch of people who have a lot of negative beliefs. They don't believe in doing this or doing that or, or drinking this or seeing those movies. And it's all about following certain prescriptions of how you behave in the world. But for Paul, being a Christian and living as a disciple of Christ is about walking with Christ, pleasing God. And so, so the reality is that if we are those who, who are struggling with obedience, where do we go? Do we dust, out, dust off the old checklists, get them out again, and, and make a list of what we must do every day? Tie a string around our finger? Well, who knows? Those may help. But what he's saying here is the motivation for obedience comes from seeing the heart of God, from having our hearts be in tune with his so that we desire to please him in the way that we walk. Our motivation comes from, from knowing the love of God for us in Christ and saying that, that because of what he has done for us, knowing how he has loved us, what he has given for us, we would not want to treat him poorly in return. That we would seek to love God, to walk in a way that's worthy of him, to be filled with the knowledge of his will. And so this, this is the second thing. It's actually the first thing in his prayer is not just the spiritual obedience that he exhorts us to, but the way to get there is through a spiritual knowledge or a spiritual wisdom. This is verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. But listen to the beginning of verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy. So how do we get to walking in a manner worthy? Well, we have to go back to verse 9. And the foundation of it is that we might have this certain knowledge. He says he has not ceased to pray that they will be filled with the knowledge of God's will. That's the, the step towards obedience. First, you have to know what to do. You have to have a knowledge of the will of God. Now, what exactly is he praying for here? Sometimes we, we think about the will of God, and we, it can be frustrating because we think about times in life when we have important decisions to make, when we're facing an uncertain future. Perhaps we have two different options that are, are open before us and we have to make a decision between one or the other. And our great desire is to follow the will of God and, and we're praying for his direction. And yet, in those cases, how often do we get a, a real certain sense that, yes, this is definitely the will of God, this is not? Well, the problem there is that, that there's two ways we talk about the will of God. The first way is what we've just described, that there's the will of God for the future. Right? That we recognize that God is a God of omniscience, that he knows all things. He knows the future perfectly. He says he knows the end from the beginning. He has ordained all things that will come to pass. There are no surprises for him. He knows exactly where each of you will be working and living a year from today. And yet he doesn't tell us that will. That's, that's the will of God, because that's his will for how the world will go. And yet... He doesn't tell that to us. But there's a second way we talk about the will of God. And that's what we call his 
prescriptive will or his, his, known, his uh, revealed will. The first will is just a secret. It can't be known what his plans for the future are. But there is a will that he has revealed to us through the word of God. And in that sense, we're talking about everything that he tells us in the Bible, the exhortations and the commands he gives us. If you were to ask, is it the will of God that, that on the way home today I should stop and, and rob a convenience store? We could say, without any doubt, no, that is not the will of God. Because he has revealed it to us in the scriptures. His will is for our obedience. For us to learn how to walk in, in discipleship, in faithfulness, in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's the will of God for you. And Paul can say without any doubt that it is up to us to learn what is the will of God for us. He prays for them, that they might be filled with the knowledge of the will of God. Because it is open to us, it is given to us, and it is reasonable for us to know it. And he says, if we are going to live a life that is pleasing to God, first, we must know what his will is. How can we please him if we don't know the sorts of things that please him? And so he prays first, that we will have this spiritual wisdom and understanding. On the one hand, it's really remarkable, isn't it, to think that we have the will of God given to us. That each one of us can open the Bible and read at our leisure and know what the heart of God is for his people, to know exactly what he expects of us, to know exactly the kind of life that is pleasing to God. It need not be a mystery to any of us. We never should be able to use the excuse that we simply didn't know what the right thing to do was because God gives us his will in the scriptures. What a gift. What a gift that is ours. And yet we recognize at the same time that it's really pretty ordinary, isn't it? He's not praying that we're going to have any special, deep, esoteric, mysterious, spiritual experience by which we'll be able to specially and secretly divine God's will for how we should live is not anything like that. He says it's quite ordinary. If you want to know the will of God, you read the Bible. If you want to know his will for your life, it's all right here for us. It's the very ordinary process of, of regularly reading the word of God, of regularly sitting under the preaching of the word of God, and therefore growing in our knowledge and our conviction of what God's will is for our lives to grow in our knowledge of it, but also, as the Spirit takes the Word of God and applies it to our hearts, we are to grow in our conviction, our conviction of what is right and good for us. And that's why he prays first, and he says, from the very day we heard. You hear what he's saying there? He's saying, from the day we heard that you guys were believers in Christ, I started and I have not ceased to pray for you that you will be growing in your knowledge of God's will. See, it, it, it's easy. We know how to pray for people who aren't believers because we want to pray that they will come to a, a conviction of sin and to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul says, as soon as we heard that you were believers in Christ, we started to pray now that you will grow in your knowledge of his will and that you'll walk in a manner worthy of the Lord that's fully pleasing to him. And he says, we haven't ceased. From the very day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for them. So, again, let this be practical for you. How can we be praying for each other as a church, as the body of Christ? Hopefully some of us will be aware of special needs throughout the body that need prayer, but, but even if you don't know anything about one of your fellow believers here in the church, let's pray for one another 
exactly as Paul prays here and not cease to pray that we will all be growing in our knowledge of his will and walking in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. Now look down at verse 11. Here's the third thing he prays for the church. Spiritual obedience that comes from spiritual wisdom and results, verse 11, in spiritual power. Verse 11, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. Again, we we think, as best as we know, that this is probably part of Paul's response to the false teachers, that there were teachers out there who were telling the believers in the church that if they wanted, they could access true spiritual power, that they, they could go beyond what Jesus offered in the gospel and to have true, deep, spiritual, mysterious, esoteric power could be theirs through their teaching. Now, we may not have that exact thing today, but it seems to me that we still have similar heresies that abound. But there are still those teachers out there who, who say that as Christians, you can simply speak words over your life and those words will somehow come true. They say that the way to change your destiny is simply to speak it into being and that if you say the words out loud that they're destined to be reality. The Apostle Paul would teach us the appropriate response to that which is phooey. That's not how it works. But what he does say is there is a way to have spiritual power. And it's through being filled with the knowledge of the will of God, living a life of obedience that is pleasing to the Lord. And then he says that they will also be strengthened with all power. And do you know what real spiritual power looks like? It's amazing because he describes real spiritual power, the essence of this this glorious might that he describes in verse 11, but here's what the person looks like who has spiritual power. They will have endurance. They will have patience with joy. And they will be filled with thanksgiving to the Father. That is Paul's picture of a person who has spiritual power. He's not some esoteric abilities to delve into the spiritual realm and cast out demons. Rather, it's to have endurance. In other words, the person here in this text who has spiritual power is not a person who has been delivered from all of their trials, but it's a person who endures in the midst of their trials, a person who does not lose hope, a person who does not give up their faith, a person who knows that the Lord Jesus hangs on to them even when their grip on him is so tenuous but they have endurance. They have patience. And not just any patience, but patience with joy. That when everything in the world seems to be caving in on them, when nothing is going right, they don't despair. But rather, they have patience. They wait upon the Lord. They take heart and are of good courage. And they wait upon the Lord with joy. Isn't, I mean... That's difficult. That takes spiritual power, and that's Paul's picture of the person with spiritual power. It's the person who has patience, even with joy, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of waiting years for the Lord to hear a particular prayer request, waiting and waiting with patience, with joy. And it's a person who's characterized by thanksgiving. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father. Why? Because he is the one who has qualified you to share in the inheritance 
of the saints in light. See, you have a heavenly Father who has given to you the inheritance of all the saints in light and qualified you. He's the one who has made you worthy to share in it by making you sons and daughters of the King, by adopting you into his family so that the inheritance now is yours. That's what spiritual power looks like. It's not something that most of the world would recognize as spiritual power, but it's something that the saints would recognize as spiritual power because it doesn't come ordinarily. It doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come easily to endure through trials and to have joy and to give thanks in the midst of those things while we wait. But by the power of the Spirit dwelling us, dwelling in us, applying the Word of God to our hearts, comforting us by His rod and His staff, causing us to lie down in green pastures beside quiet waters, that's the source of of spiritual power, of endurance and of patience. And all that spiritual power is yours. It's yours. Why not? Because you gained any special elite spiritual kind of knowledge that was unavailable to other people. It's yours because God, our great covenant God, who keeps loyal love towards those who love him, is because he looked on you in his grace and mercy and he transferred you out of the domain of darkness. Now he's made you citizens of the kingdom of his beloved son. And in that kingdom... The king, Jesus, who reigns, he gives these gifts to all his subjects, all his his brothers and sisters whom he loves, whom he rules over with kindness. He gives them spiritual power, the grace of endurance, the grace of patience, the grace of thanksgiving, the grace of joy. It's yours, and all it takes is Christ. Because that is yours, he prays, may you be filled with the knowledge of his will. May you walk in a way that is pleasing to God. And may you know what this is to have spiritual power. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for you are a great and awesome God who is high and lifted up, and yet you are pleased to dwell with the lowly. And so you've looked upon us with mercy and with grace, loved us from before the creation of the world and therefore transferred us out of the domain of darkness, redeemed us by the blood of your Son. Lord, what precious words. It is finished. What precious words to our hearts. We ask now that the the Spirit who inspired these words to be written would take them. Lord, that they would not return to you void, but that the Spirit may impress them on our hearts, that he may cause us to hear them and to understand, to uh, meditate on them, to grow through them, to abide in them. And so we may bear much fruit. Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.